This Voice of the Arts podcast is made possible thanks to the Carnegie Museum of Art. You are listening to the Voice of the Arts on WQED-FM. I'm Flora Kelly, and today we'll be speaking with my friend Matthew Mantini from our school, Indiana University of Pennsylvania. Uh, it's been a while since we've talked. How are you doing? I'm all right. I, uh, I'm actually uh, recovering from COVID right now. I had it... Um... Oh my God. I went to a uh, conference with the rest of um, the Tubi Euphonium studio at IEP in Atlanta, Georgia, and I came back to uh, help out with the summer music camp that IEP just did for um, for middle and high schoolers. And on the second day of it, I started coughing and it just went downhill from there. I'm fine now. I just am still coughing a little bit, but beyond oh that... Um, I finished my summer classes and I'm just really, uh, I'm working and doing community band. That's pretty much all that's on my plate right now. So I interview so many people who are like very deep into their careers as musicians. So I wanted to take the opportunity to talk with somebody who's just embarking on theirs. So thanks mm -hmm. for taking the time. Yeah, of course. Glad so, to be here. Yeah, glad to have you. So uh, go ahead and tell me a little bit about yourself. Okay, so currently I am going to be a senior next year and I'll be um, finishing one more regular semester of classes and then student teaching because I am a uh, dual major in music ed and uh, music composition. There wasn't necessarily a set time when I realized that music was a career that I wanted to do. It was just something that occurred to me maybe between 10th and 11th grade. It was like, hey, I'm pretty decent at this and not too many other things. <laughs> so sure, why not? Um, my uh, primary instrument is euphonium, but I started as a percussionist. And before that, I had taken piano lessons for maybe a year or two because my sister had started doing that. And I wanted to do things that my sister was doing, regardless of whether she knew or not. <laughs> um, and I got a little bored with that. I switched to trumpet in sixth grade, and then I hated that. And I tried to quit band, and my director literally would not permit me to quit band. So the alternative was switching to euphonium. And uh, he sat me in his office for like two weeks with a lesson book while he worked on other students. And I guess I just caught up. It, it clicked a lot more naturally. Um, yeah. I said something to myself like, all right, I'll give it till uh, the end of October, and then I'll decide if I'm sticking with this. And then I remembered that I said that in like February. So I stuck with that through uh, the remainder of elementary school and all of high school. And now, like I said, I'm going to be a senior. Gotcha. So <laughs> not permitting you to, to quit band. That sounds, that sounds delightfully illegal somehow. <laughs> Uh, I had a, I had a signed note from my mother and he ripped it up in front of me what and, uh, and when I was uh, a senior in high school, I mentioned it to him and he had no recollection of this whatsoever. Cause I had the same band director all the way through beginning to graduation. Yeah. So I, this happens so much that he just doesn't think about it anymore or, uh, I'm sure he he has a lot more to going on yeah, for, yeah. for six to remember something like that for six years, but I remembered core memory. Yeah, <laughs> the classic 
I don't remember any such thing. <laughs> yeah, we've heard that all too many times, but I, I, it was good for me in the long run because yeah. I don't know how different my life would be right now if he had permitted me to quit. Right. I don't know if I would have stuck with piano. I don't know if I ever would have joined choir, uh, which I was, I was able to do both band and choir, although choir slightly less. Um, I don't know. I'd probably be doing like social studies education or some kind of social science like psychology or um, I don't know. One of the uh, social sciences is the word I was looking for as opposed to natural science. But I'm happy with what I'm doing now. Yeah, who knows? You might not have ended up where you are at all. So what made you want to double major in education as well as composition? When I came to IEP, I was uh, just education and I didn't add, apply. So I uh, used to submit a portfolio to, um, there were two composition professors at the time and they pretty much just have to say, yeah, this guy's teachable. <laughs> um to admit you to the program and i did that my fourth semester but i realized that it was something that i wanted to do about a month before everything got shut down for covid and that sort of derailed things with irregular school and i wasn't focusing on writing as much as i wanted to and i was just trying to get through my regular edu education classes so i didn't actually submit anything until like i said fourth semester yeah. but Dr. Collins is the um, Duba Euphonium professor at IEP, and every semester he uh, has some kind of writing assignment for his studio. And for uh, the, your first three semesters, it's a paper about uh, either an album or a sp specific uh, performer, Duba Euphonium artist, something like that. And then from then until you student teach, well, then until your seventh semester, because not everyone's an ed major, but you either have to arrange something for tubas and euphoniums or compose something original for it. And I started arranging something. I had no idea what it was. And I realized that that was a lot of fun. And that's when I really started to think about composing. Yeah. And it just kind of spiraled from there. And then I bought Finale which is um, a music notation software. And I finally got rid of it <laughs> and downloaded Dorico, which is a, in my opinion, a much more uh, streamlined one. Buying Finale, I think was the commitment that I made to yeah. composition. And it's what I would like to do, at least as a uh, not insignificant part of my life. Long-term, I would like to continue uh, and go to graduate school to study composition. Mm -hmm. um, but I understand that you can't be just one thing as a musician today, at least in the classical world. And I'm sure this carries over to other genres. So I'm interested in continuing to perform, although I don't think that could be my primary focus. Conducting, uh, recording arts, I think is something that's an invaluable skill because if you can write the music and then you can record the people who are performing your music. Right. You don't have to pay someone to do that. Ah. And you can also know, um, you can also just always find work as a, well, probably find work <laughs> as someone who knows their way around recording, especially if you own your own equipment. You gotta have your uh, 
there's definitely a better way to say this phrase, but you have to have uh, your fingers in a lot of pies <laughs> uh, to make it today, I think. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, main goal, study composition uh, through graduate school and get a master's degree. And if all goes according to plan, uh, continue on to a uh, DMA or PhD program. Gotcha. And teach at a university, composition or music theory, some intersection of the two. Really, it's a lot like teaching in a uh, K-12 environment because for a while, you take a job that you get hired at rather than your dream job. Yeah. Because I know that if I change my mind, my ideal placement would actually be a choral position or an elementary one mm -hmm. um, teaching general music. And I know that getting a good position, like a well-supported one, immediately out of college, straight off the bat, pretty unlikely. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> if I get thrown into the world of middle, middle school orchestra, then it's probably temporary, but it's something that you have to be equipped um, to at least know how to pick up and stay ahead of your students at least a little bit. Right. Um, but there's a manner of spending some time at a job that isn't perfect till you find an opportunity, you get the experience and get to a position that you'll stay at for hopefully a long time, Right. both in K-12 and academia. Yeah. The, the sooner that you make peace with that fact, the, the better off, the better off you are. I feel like that's, that's true of pretty much anybody. So I'm glad to hear you've, you've made mm -hmm. peace with that fact. <laughs> I don't want to say anything divisive about public or private schools, but both of them can have underfunded programs and you just have to deal with that. If your band room is a janitor's closet, I've heard about that happening from right. recent graduates. It's a reality. So support the arts, fund public music education. Absolutely. So you kind of got into this a little bit about what you hope to do with your composition degree. Because um, I know I know what you want to do with your your education degree, but it was it was surprising to me whenever I, I learned that you had added on a, a dual major. So um, I guess do you want to comp compose music as like a significant part of your life, or did you pursue it to kind of give you a deeper understanding of the music you'd be teaching? At first. I didn't think that I would continue to go on into academia and have composing be my primary thing. I was still thinking of myself as a teacher first, and I still do. Right. But at the time, I was like, okay, in what way can I write pieces for middle school band or smaller groups? Say I have three really strong clarinet players in sixth grade, and I want something that can challenge them. Um, with a composition degree and even just the experience from taking lessons, because you don't, of course, you don't need a degree to know how to compose, but the experience you get and the guidance you get from taking lessons can help you uh, be as specific as possible if you're writing for a certain goal. So at the time, I was, I was thinking about writing music as having the purpose of teaching students something <laughs> to fulfill some kind of gap in middle school repertoire, because not to talk trash, but there's a pretty wide um, gap in the repertoire of decent music, at least for choir in the middle school, for changing voices. And that's a complicated thing to write for. Right. right. And there's, for a long time, uh, 
only research was focused on uh, male voices. And now, especially recently, there's been a lot more uh, work done with um, the changing of biological female voices. Yeah. And both of those groups for like, uh, from you, you have your uh, biological male small ensembles where you can write for specific voice types without making any of them strange the voice straining their voices and the same goes for uh females and right now that music doesn't exist or what does is not always the either most performable like it's just above their level or yeah. it's just not something they're going to enjoy and that that's a gap that needs to be filled i'm thankful that uh the director of choral studies at iup emphasizes this a lot in um, the general choral methods class that was pretty eye-opening for me seeing into a completely different world because i was in choir but i have a total band background mm -hmm. beyond that um with composing the rest of my life i would like for that to be the thing that i do if i have to pick any one thing that's a really interesting point that you made about there being a huge lack of music that exists for changing voices. I, I don't work in this field, so that's not something mm -hmm. that, that ever would have occurred to me. So that's that's a really interesting niche to go for. So that kind of brings me into my next question. Who do you think that you compose for? As in, what audience do you hope to be reaching with what you do? I don't know if I have a concrete answer to that yet because I'm 21 years old right I've taken maybe about yeah one and a half years of lessons in total and yes. I'm still finding my voice and that's not an easy thing to do for any kind of artist and you see um people whose uh styles change quite a bit through their career as an artist a uh, great example I can think of is uh Igor Stravinsky or uh, Aaron Copeland. Um, some of Copeland's old music is very atonal, and it's not the uh, pieces you would think of today uh, that are like very folk inspired that um, you may recognize, um, like Appalachian Spring uses a lot of uh, folk music. Uh, what's another one? Fanfare for the Common Man. You've probably heard it, even if you don't know it by that name. But this is what Copeland is like remembered for today. And there's this wealth of music that, I don't know, weird, I guess is a good word for it, because styles will change. And that reflects uh, what is popular at the time and also what you as an artist are interested in writing at the time. And also who is playing your music. Mm -hmm. Because if you look at where new music is getting premiered and championed the most, you're going to see that it's... Uh, university wind bands and wind ensembles. America doesn't have a lot of professional wind ensembles. They're primarily military bands, but a lot of major orchestras are programming the occasional new work by someone alive, but their concert programs are still filled with um, the classics like Beethoven and Mahler and Haydn, etc. There's nothing wrong with any of those things, but new music is being championed more in band and that's something that i'm looking pretty seriously about because as a composer as an artist you want someone you want people to see your work and if i wrote 10 great pieces for orchestra and one of them gets played ever once i don't think that would satisfy me 
So you sometimes write uh, for the conditions that you face. You kind of, you kind of keep leading me perfectly into my next into my next <laughs> question. Um, how important do you think it is to keep pleasing the audience in mind when creating music? Like, what balance should there be between creating art for art's sake and creating art to be enjoyed by the masses? It's uh, probably the most revealing question or telling one or something of how someone thinks about these things. I think that today people are saying that classical music is dying. People have been saying classical music is dying for greater than a hundred years. Brahms thought he would be like the last great, I don't know, um, influential remembered composer, something like that. And uh, Mahler made fun of him for that. Uh, but th that's neither here nor there. The idea that classical music is dying is, of course, very old. And when people say that for years, it starts to feel less and less true. Yeah. But I think that maybe some of the culture needs to die off for the rest of it to continue and thrive. I think that there are some antiquated ideas that just alienate people who are new to it. Absolutely. Um, Things like clapping between movements and which is a thing that you're not supposed to do. Yeah. yeah. But that tradition didn't really begin until uh, the Romantic era with Wagner. It was very normal um, in Mozart's day for a movement to conclude in the middle of an orchestra and everyone just in the middle of an orchestra, in the middle of a symphony and everyone would stand up and applaud. And then they do the whole movement again as an encore. So this added these attitudes did not always exist and they don't have to continue existing um so in terms of pleasing the audience to actually answer the question i think that there is room for both a very academic music almost as a study of what can i do what is the limit of what i can do an example of this i think would be uh the italian composer whose name i'm not going to pronounce correctly uh Giacinto Scalzi, who uh, one of his best known works is a four movement work for orchestra and each movement is comprised entirely of one pitch and he experience uh, he experiments with um, playing notes out of tune and uh, with different timbres of different instruments and combinations of things various extended techniques but that's something that I would qualify as maybe in the more abstract art yeah. of the uh, musical realm. And then, like I mentioned before, you have Copeland, you have music for the masses, which is not any better or worse inherently than what I just described, like Fanfare for the Common Man or um, Billy the Kid or uh, Rodeo, like his better known uh, ballets. Um, if we want to get people who aren't musicians into classical music, I think the way that you do that, at least by starting, is changing some of these uh traditions and writing music that is accessible and recognizable to people yes. and also making concerts cheap. I know that there are um, some major opera houses, and I wish I could think of one off the top of my head, who are like doing $10 tickets. Like that's cl uh, close to the price of a movie theater anymore. Mm -hmm. And I think that's absolutely great, and that should continue. I know that the Johnstown Orchestra, um, my parents just went to this concert, actually. They went to a uh, concert that was um, in an airport hangar. 
I don't remember where they did um half the program was um it's just generally called pops it was music from uh top gun for example other stuff and the second half of the concert was tchaikovsky's fifth symphony and i think doing stuff like this is great or even just all pops concerts uh, i think i think it was johnstown who's done things in the past like they show a star wars movie behind them and they play the score live yeah yeah i think this is great because john williams is not just a film composer. He has many works that are just for orchestra. He has a bassoon concerto. He has a tuba concerto. Yeah. Um, and drawing people in with these things and getting them to experience the depth of where classical music can go, I think is how you expand it and you keep people interested in it who aren't musicians themselves. Because a lot of people who listen to classical music anymore are or were musicians or they're they really hate contemporary music, I guess, uh, which is a separate topic, but classical music is no better or worse than hip hop or new metal or country music. And I think as a musician, it's important to stay well-versed, both as a musician and a teacher, it's important to stay well-versed in what is popular today and always be working on expanding your horizons. Even something like talking to your music classroom about the Super Bowl halftime show the next day or something like that, because that's something that they're going to know. And that's something that you can talk to them about and learn about their interests, both as um, people and as uh, musicians outside of band or choir or orchestra. You can also play pop music in your band or choir and orchestra, too. There's nothing stopping you from doing that. And helping kids connect with the music is a great way to keep them interested and in keeping them in your program. Well said. You know, I'm I actually am familiar with the uh, the airport hangar uh, Johnstown concert that you mentioned. I think I covered it. I think I made a promo for it for. for oh, nice. Yeah. Um, so what you said about a lot of the culture, especially around classical music needing to die is so true. Like as a kind of a beginner into this genre myself, that is something that immediately sticks out to me as being very intimidating and would maybe be the thing to drive me away if I was, you know, getting into the genre and, uh, your sentiments exactly are something that I've heard time and time again from people that I've interviewed, um, that people say that classical music is quote unquote dying, but they say that if, if anything needs to actually be done about that, it's the kind of the uptight culture that might exist sometimes. I recently attended a uh, youth orchestra that, that happened at uh, Heinz Hall and it was, you know, all grade levels and the, the audience was mainly, you know, the families and the parents and everything. And uh, an audience, an audience like that might not necessarily know like the etiquette of when not to applaud between movements and things like that. Mm -hmm. um, you know, which is something that I myself didn't know until recently. But until I started uh, attending your concerts at IUP, actually. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, so th things would happen in the audience, like uh, people would would applaud and and stuff whenever they, you know, quote unquote, weren't, weren't supposed to. And uh, there was a few dads that were like cheering and going, yeah. And, oh, and I think that's great. Yeah. yeah. You, you just see this at like concerts of every other genre. You have people who are like on their feet and cheering and it's completely different atmosphere right right i i love the the energy that that gave the room like it made it feel a lot more engaging 
So yeah, that's a, that's a great point that you make. Um, I guess to pivot a little bit now, uh, what are your personal musical influences? And I guess if, if that's too much of a, of a, of a thinker, what are, what kind of music do you find most inspiring? It doesn't even have to be classical. Well, within the classical genre at large, if I had to list favorites, all of them are from the 20th century or uh, more recent than then. That's not to say that I don't like people before them, um, but what I what has resonated with me the most, I think, Francis Poulenc, um, Rafe von Williams. Let me find someone who's living today. Uh, I like Jennifer Jolly's music. I like Omar Thomas's music. Luckily, uh, the uh, Wind Ensemble has played a lot of his music in the recent years, and I, it's really great stuff. And it's good that more and more people are playing Omar Thomas and his career is taking off like this because it's wonderful. And I think it's uh, what classical music needs. And also, like I said, this is band music. This is wind ensemble music. And it's university bands and wind ensembles that are championing this new stuff. Outside of the classical world, it would be remiss of me to not mention the Mountain Goats. Absolutely. Uh, such a massive discography of touching on so many different genres and movements. There's got to be something for everyone somewhere in all of their music. Uh, beyond that, indie rock and indie pop, um, Snail Mail. Yes, I really cool. like uh, her music. Um, also stuff like uh, Streetlight Manifesto. Defiance, Ohio, uh, Cage the Elephant, R.E.M., I love Ben her. Folds. Yeah, it's great stuff. Uh, Taylor Swift's new music and some of Taylor Swift's old music, too. You need to be, well, at least I think that you need to be well-rounded and in touch with what is popular and not stay in your own bubble in, uh, as a teacher in academic fields of music as someone with any who wants any kind of solo career in music. Also, I've neglected uh, musical theater and jazz as well. And I'm fans of both of those things too. Being familiar with them, great skills as musicians. And as a teacher, you're gonna run into uh, kids who are really into musical theater. Oh and yeah. And being able to support them and let them do and experience what they love to do is going to be very fulfilling for you and very fulfilling for them because uh, the goal of public music education this is not the question you asked at all but all i right. think the goal of k through 12 music education is to ins to inspire a lasting appreciation for music at large mm -hmm. it's not a failure if your kid graduates and never takes their saxophone out of the case again it's a failure if they graduate high school and they say, I am never listening to music again. <laughs> Most people are probably not going to have a reaction like that. But yeah. um, if they continue to listen and they learn listening skills and think critical thinking skills uh, about art and music through their lives, that's a success. And hopefully they go on to support it, whether that's through just being vocal about the necessity of the arts and what it did for them or some kind of financial contributions. It's going to be different for every person. Yeah. But K through 12 school is 
in an extremely difficult situation right now, not only with COVID, but with um, things that come with that. So less money for most parts of the school. Uh, you have less teachers, um, less people applying for jobs too, uh, because it's not a field that people are going into as much anymore because it's not lucrative financially. And given the financial state of things, I understand why people are interested in going into a field that's going to pay the bills a little more comfortably. I think to be an artist today, you have to be at least crazy enough to know that you're not going to be um, doing it for the money and you're probably not going to make all the money. Yeah. It's about um sense of personal fulfillment. But back to K-12, um, it's difficult to give every student what they need because the arts are important and STEM classes are also very important because we need new minds, new thinkers to allow the world to keep, and, and humanity at large, to keep growing. And that happens both scientifically, but also artistically. Um, there's not really a gap as big as people imagine between the two of them, funding-wise maybe. But um, you also have, I firmly believe that you should have two history classes in your schedule as a K through 12 student, maybe from like fourth grade onward. I think more time needs to be dedicated to history, social science, um, critical thinking skills related to these things so people go up and become well-read and educated citizens of a country. And the intersection of art and science and history, all these things will make people, will make students better citizens, to put it into a word. And there's not enough money to support all of these programs with the way things are right now. And I don't know what the solution is, but it's something that weighs on me a lot. And I'm lucky enough to have a good education and a comfortable upbringing. And I can feel like I'm well-read and that I have some critical thinking skills and uh, artistic appreciation skills, but I'm also 21, so who knows? Um, <laughs> I at least have a strong, the foundation is there and every student deserves that. And I guess that's another reason why I want to be a teacher yeah, <laughs> or why I went into education in the first place. I love that you're going into the teaching world with that outlook and that understanding. Um, Cause I absolutely agree with you that, you know, it's essential that teachers are able to uh, reflect and encourage whatever kind of interest the students have, whether that seems like it immediately pertains to the subject or not. Um, Cause you know, I can vouch that if a teacher is trying to discourage you from one form of what you're learning in favor of another, you're just going to go in the opposite direction. I guess to go back to the subject of IUP briefly, anybody that attends IUP, no matter what department you are, you kind of know that uh, the music de music department is its own culture entirely. And the, the music majors all have such like a tight knit and uh, hardworking community going on. Um, I guess, give me an idea of why you think the department has such a unique culture. I think that uh, the first and probably most obvious answer is the physical location of the music building. And also the fact that so many of the classes are concentrated entirely in that building. Mm -hmm. 
when you have otherwise uh, people going through HSS and um, Stripe maybe, and uh, Stouffer is the one I was thinking of, classes that are all related to your major all across campus. And when you have music or uh, for the art students as well, they have Sprouse. Those are where almost all of your stuff is going to be. It's where you practice. It's where your ensembles rehearse. So you're spending so much of your time there around these specific people. You build that bond with them by proximity, which is what makes the ties so strong. Mm -hmm. I think uh, the physical location and the concentration in Cogswell Hall is what brings people closer together because you spend all your time around these people. So hopefully you find some ones that you like and can work together with. And college is not an easy thing through COVID uh, to go into a field like education or any kind of um, fine arts field. Mm -hmm. But uh, with education specifically, you know that there are teacher shortages and you're gonna find positions where your band room's a janitor's closet, like I said earlier, and wages are not gonna be as high as you'd like them to be. And that's scary. And I don't know too many people who aren't at least a little bit worried about the future in general, but the fact that there are such tight knit groups of people in the music department, it's a blessing and also a necessity. Mm -hmm. It's uh, through the shared experience of being a musician today. And I also think instrumental studios have a lot to do with that. Um, it is not uncommon for professors to uh, go out to a restaurant with the, uh, the corral or um, Dr. Collins, uh, like I said, we just went to a festival in Atlanta with the uh, 2B Phoneme Studio. Mm -hmm. um, we do uh, an event called Tuba Christmas every uh, December, which yeah. is effectively what it sounds like. Bunch of 2B Phoneme players come together uh, with the most uh, garishly decorated instruments that you can manage yes. um, and honk out a bunch of Christmas carols. <laughs> and after that, we always went over to Dr. Collins's house and had chili. And um, the professors have played such an integral part of supporting us through this and making the community what it is. And that is a blessing because they don't have to do that. And they choose to. And we're lucky for that, Yeah, I guess. And it'd be a lot harder without it. There's a lot of factors that makes um, Cogswell Hall the community that it is. Yeah, and I guess that that can go back to uh, the dedication of uh, teachers really shaping the educational culture at large, you know. Um, you have power in a classroom. Absolutely. Uh, I recently was, I was at a uh, QED event and I had a guy come up to me because um, he'd heard from somebody else that I was from IUP and uh, he asked if I was uh, from Cogswell and I thought that that was interesting. And I said, sadly, no, but, but I thought it was interesting that he didn't say uh, the music department, he said Cogswell, because, you know, that, that's what it mm -hmm. is, Cogswell. Yeah. It's, and, uh, you know, if, if you go to- The name carries IUP, weight. Yeah, the name carries weight. And if you go to IUP, you know, you know Cogswell for that reason. This is also just my personal experience, but in Cambria County, a great number of the uh, band directors and likely choral directors as well are 
IEP graduates from like the early 2000s. I can name like six of them. Not that I'm going to, but like this school, it carries a lot of weight, the name and people speak so highly of it because of the program that it offered and because Cogswell is a great place to be. Well, most of the time. <laughs> Midnight in the practice room, maybe not so much. <laughs> so I've heard. <laughs> but beyond that, it's what people remember. When people finish here, they remember it. Yeah. And when they go into education, they encourage other people to go there. So I guess give me an idea of what the music department's version of an internship looks like, because for me, it's, you know, doing work like this for a set number of hours, but I've heard that it's a little bit different for you. Yeah, so um, I think a lot of uh, education degrees in general are going to involve a pretty serious amount of classroom observation. For music ed at IEP, what that looks like is you have pre-student teaching one, pre-student teaching two, and your actual semester of student teaching. And we call them pre one and pre two. Those classes are basically spend a minimum of 35 hours observing a classroom. One of them is supposed to be um, secondary level and the other one is supposed to be elementary music. You can work with the teacher. You can lead a warm up. You can um, conduct something briefly. You can uh, help with a an individual lesson. There's um, so much hands-on experience that you can get doing this. Right. All before you student teach. And then student teaching, of course, is you spend your uh, entire semester at a school district directly involved with the students. So for me, as a composition major, there are a couple different things that I could do. There's not a set requirement. It just has to be approved by my teacher. So that could be a composition recital of my own music. I think it would have to be 45, a half hour, 45 minutes not positive about that um and that would be performed by ip students that's typically like a culminating senior activity uh the other thing i could do is um write a major work and if circumstances allowed have it performed by a large ensemble at iep a couple years ago a student he wrote a piece uh, for two solo alto saxophones accompanied by the wind ensemble. And that was maybe 10 or 12 minutes. I might be lowballing that, but that was his uh, culminating activity. But that's the closest thing to an internship that I have with the uh, BFA in composition. So which of these uh, culminating uh, activities do you think you're leaning towards? As it stands right now, the recital. That said, I have a lot of work to do. Next semester, I have my second round of observations that I talked about previously, as well as my final semester of instrumental lessons and uh, standard fare of things, while also preparing for student teaching and also graduate school applications. Because my current plan is to attend graduate school for composition immediately after finishing at IUP. So next, I'd like to get into the uh, spotlight of the original composition that you sent me. Um, it's called Remember, and it comes in at just under three minutes. I listened to it. It is, it is beautiful. It is haunting is the word that I would choose. Um, so what can you tell me about the piece before we listen to it? 
I'm not as well versed as I would like to be in poetry, so I had to consult um, some of my friends who knew a little bit more about this, and one of them pointed me in the direction of Christina Rossetti. Mm -hmm. If memory serves, uh, she was an 19th century poet through basically the whole course of it. Um, and romantic poetry is all very emotional. Some could call it overly dramatic because this poem is about dying. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of poems about dying from the romantic era. But um, as you said, haunting, I think, is a good way to describe even just the, the text alone. And um, the text is drawn from the poem, Remember. Setting that was depressing sometimes. But I also think that when you are working with an already finished work of art, like a poem, you have to lend a lot of weight to that poem itself. I think you've done something perhaps less successfully if your tone of your music doesn't match the tone of the text. So I wrote something very somber, introspective, but when you w work with poetry, you kind of have guidelines written unofficially for you. That said, it's written in a uh, strophic form. So the beginning of every stanza sounds pretty similar. I w I'll spare you my singing, but uh, you'll probably hear it in the recording. And um, if it helps, you can just easily look up the text and you'll see where each stanza begins and see how they all have a very similar ending and then there's a uh, final coda that's different from the rest of it. This was a piece that I submitted to the IP Scholars Forum and it tied for first place with my friend uh, Dylan Opolinski, who's also a composer, who is also going to be making waves, as I'll say, <laughs> with uh, his music. But this uh, tied for first place, like I said, and I'm very grateful that uh, Sabrina Long and Terrell Austin Rice uh, agreed to perform this and uh, do a recording session with me. And also Dylan who recorded this. Um, so special shout out to them. And I really hope you enjoy the piece. So this is Remember, a original composition by Matthew Mantini.
Again, that was Remember. Thank you so much for sharing that with me, for me to, to include in the in the program. Um, of course, thank you for having me and uh, showing it off for me. Yes, of course. So before we wrap up today, is there anything else that you'd like listeners to know? I think I touched on this a little bit before, but um, support music ed education in K through 12 schools. It makes more of a difference to the kids than you could ever imagine. Or maybe you can because it made that difference for you. And if it made that difference for you, don't forget about it and continue to advocate. Uh, if that means running for school board for you, then go for it. Um, beyond that, uh, musicians, work on getting new people into it and making concerts accessible for them and give them an experience that's going to make them want to come back. Because that's how, if you believe classical music is dying, that's how you revive it. As a final note, uh, go listen to IEP's concerts. Um, there are some recordings on YouTube, I believe. Uh, there are, of course, many every semester. Um, we have a new marching band director, and uh, the marching band is very excited about him. And so am I. So go, come out to a football game, support the football team in the marching band if you're able to. All right. I think that's all I got to plug. <laughs> well said. So thanks so much again for taking the time to talk with me. It's been great. Yeah, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. You've been listening to The Voice of the Arts on WQED-FM, made possible by the Carnegie Museum of Art.